and John 8, 12 through 20. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Our preacher uh, this morning uh, was last here eight years ago uh, when he preached my installation service. When you think about uh, your installation, it's kind of like how you think about the pastor that you want to do your wedding. Someone that has, uh, knows your story, someone that has walked uh, with you in important parts of your journey. Uh, the pastor that you want their name to show up on your caller ID when you're going through something difficult. And that person, for me, even though I know a dozen, not hundreds of pastors, the person that I want to read my installation uh, was Rod Miles. Uh, he's also the guy that would fly up uh, and drop a piece of and rearrange his schedule to find a pastor to fill in for him so that he can come up and fill in for me when I need a break. And that's the kind of uh, guy that Rod is. Uh, he started out in investment banking, uh, and then when he wanted to make some real money, he quit that and went to seminary and became a pastor. Um, and he's been a pastor in Marin County for over a decade now where he planted uh, Grace Marin. And it's a thriving church, one that I've reached out for, a lovely church. Um, I'm so uh, easily delighted to have Rod here. And I think that you guys will be um, in for a real treat and encouragement. So, Rod, thank you. wonderful space. I don't know if you appreciate it, um, but uh, we worship in a 
college cafeteria. And, uh, and it's, uh, we try to make it special, but uh, we don't have nearly, nearly as special a place as you have. So I hope you appreciate that. I hope you appreciate your pastor because he's a good one and he's somebody who I love and care about and care deeply for. And, uh, and I, I love his family. I love his wife. We got to talk about photography last night and had a great time. But uh, I love being here. I really thank you for the privilege of, um, <clears throat> of getting to be here. Uh, when I was a boy, my, my uh, mother loved reading the newspaper. After, after dinner, she would go and she would uh, lay on the couch and she'd curl up with the dog and she'd read the newspaper. And the kids would take off and we'd go do homework or something like that. And uh, a half an hour later, you'd see the, the newspaper laying on her face because she was sleeping. And it was like it was every time. And I, I never understood why my mom was so sleepy until I had children myself. And then I totally, I totally got it. But she loved the newspaper, and she um, taught me to love the newspaper. And everywhere I've ever gone since I've been uh, 18 years old and left home, I've ordered the newspaper. And so I've read some of the great papers of the world, the Times of London, and I've and uh, the New York Times, and I get the Marin Independent Journal. It's not one of the great papers of the world, but it's, uh, it's okay. It's a Bay Area paper, and I love to read about the sports and the kids, and my kids get to play sports and are sometimes in there as well. And so I've learned to love the paper, but my mother has macular degeneration, and she has it bad, and, uh, and uh, she no longer can read the paper. And it's very sad for all of us. And I'm, I'm, I'm sad for her, and it makes me sad. And in fact, the macular degeneration has gotten so bad that the world is kind of going dark to her. And, um, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult thing for her. It's a difficult thing for all of us. And uh, the reason I share that is because Jesus uses uh, this metaphor of light and darkness in this passage about uh, to tell us something about who he is and what he came to do. And I think he uses light and darkness because light and darkness are really easy to understand. They're very, very relatable. Uh, all throughout the scriptures, Jesus and, and, uh, and the scripture writers talk about light and they talk about darkness. And darkness is always a metaphor for alienation from God, for being out by yourself and out from under his presence. And light is always uh, a, a union with God, a, 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 a a, re, uh, a reunion with God. It's, it's, it has a, a, a wonderful sense about it. I don't know about you, but when it's, I grew up in Chicagoland, and when it was cloudy for four months, and I have a feeling it's sort of the same way here in Portland, that when the spring sun comes out, even though the, the, the sun is 92 million miles away, I sometimes I get up on my tiptoes just to feel the light of the sun because it's so beautiful to have the light in my life. And I think Jesus is really kind of just using this very relatable metaphor. And so We've been going through uh, the, the so-called I am statements of Jesus at our church. Uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of the life. I am the shepherd. I am the vine. He goes through seven different I am statements. And last week we did, I am the light of the world. And I thought I would just share with you what we talked about in terms of I am the light of the world. And I, I really just want to sort of focus on, I gave you the whole of the, 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 the sort of the scripture that surrounds us so that we get the context. But it's an incredible, incredible claim that he has. It's a very challenging claim that he has. And it's very real and inviting. And so I want to just sort of share those things with you this morning. So first of all, it's an incredible claim. And what, one of the things that makes it incredible is the context in which he said it. Jesus said, I am the light of the world at the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Now, I don't know if you're like me. Uh, if your v- D- DVR is on right now, I almost said VCR, didn't I? If your DVR is on right now, uh, it might be recording some of the Sunday morning talk shows, and you might get sick of all that. And I generally do get sick of it, but I kind of like to watch, you know, the different Sunday morning talk shows. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, the topic on the Sunday morning talk shows was uh, the then-President-elect Trump was criticizing John Lewis, and, and, uh, and, and people were rightly upset about the way he was criticizing, but he did it on Martin Luther King weekend. So the context of it was very insensitive, and I think it, it made it all the, all the more so. So the point that I'm trying to make is the context of which, uh, when you say something, oftentimes enhances it. And uh, I think you can see what Jesus is trying to say even more by the context in which he says it. In fact, <clears throat> he says it, right in the midst of this Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you're like me, I don't remember all these different feasts, so let me just remind you that the Feast of Tabernacles was the the last and greatest feast that the Israelites would have during the year. They would come into Jerusalem, and, and the purpose of the feast was to remember God's provision when Israel had left Egypt, they were, they were slaves in Egypt and had come out of the land and were moving toward the promised land. And in the wilderness, God had provided them. He had saved them and then he had provided for them. And he wanted them to remember that. This was, this was part of their history, a very important part of their history, to remember that God is a saving God and that God is a providing God. And he wants us to remember it even today. But he wanted those Israelites in that first century to remember that. And so they had the Feast of Tabernacles. And essentially, it was a week-long feast, the longest of all the feasts. And during During that week, they recapitulated this saving act of God. Uh, God saving them from Egypt and taking them toward and uh, into the wilderness and toward the promised land. And so they were reenacting this time in the wilderness. And so all the pilgrims would come into uh, Jerusalem. They wouldn't stay in the Jerusalem Hyatt or the, the, the Holiday Inn they, or, the, or even get a VRBO. They would bring their own VRBO. They would, they would bring these uh, shelters or make these shelters and stay in these sort of thatched shelters to remember what it was like when God had taken them out of Egypt and in, into the wilderness. And when they would, uh, when they would worship together, all of the liturgies were liturgies of remembrance of God's saving hand for them. And there was one particular, um, there was one particular sort of aspect of, of worship that would happen every, every uh, day of the festival. And that is the priests would pour out water and they would remind them of, of God providing uh, water in the wilderness. Um, when we think wilderness, oftentimes we think of trees and birds chirping and, and nice streams and that kind of stuff. But if you've ever been into the wilderness in, um, in Israel, it's barrenness. It, it's nothingness. Think moon more than you think that, that you know, the sort of the, the woods and that sort of stuff. And so there was no water. And in fact, the Israelites, when they had gone out, they, they'd been saved from Pharaoh and they'd gone out into the wilderness and they said, were there not enough graves in Egypt for you to kill us? You know, they were, they were doubting God's provision for them. But God had Moses strike the rock and water came. And so they remembered that during, during uh, this festival of uh, or the Feast of uh, the Tabernacles. But there was one, uh, also, one, one other thing that went on during the week is that there were these massive torches in, in Jerusalem, and they sort of lit up the whole city. 
And on the, but on the last night of the feast, they extinguished one of the torches. And they extinguished one of the torches because they were still a people under oppression. They were under the oppression of the Romans. And before them, the Medes and the Persians. And before them, the Assyrians. And before them, the Babylonians. They were still kind of a people. Not kind of. They were truly a people in exile. Not only literally in exile, but they were also a people in exile away from God. Away from the presence of God because of because of the way in which they had rejected God's uh, uh, invitation to them. And so th- there was this, they took, they took out one of the torches, uh, or unlit one of the torches to remind themselves that there was still, there was one to come, there was one that, this Messiah who was to come, that uh, Isaiah even spoke about in our, in our Old Testament passage. And it was there, sorry to be so long-winded about that, but it was there before this, un, this, before this unlit torch that Jesus says, I... I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It was in this context that Jesus made this audacious statement about who he was, and the Israelites knew, especially those those faithful pilgrims who had come and worshipped all week long and remembering about God's provision, and now he had the audacity to stand in front of this unlit torch and to claim himself the light of the world. And somebody says, Rod, you're thinking too much about this Feast of Tabernacles. But it's, it's also in the context of the whole Bible. And we're so kind to have the, the, uh, Isaiah 60 uh, read to us. But did, did you hear what Isaiah 60 said? This is the prophet Isaiah. And he was, um, he was uh, prophesying about this one who would come. And this one who would come. And he, and he puts it this way. Arise and shine for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, a thick darkness over all the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And later he talks about when, Isaiah talks about when this light has come and when this light does all that this light had intended to do. Down in verse 19 he says, The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your, and the, and your God will be your glory. The sun will never set again, the moon will wane no more, the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. Jesus is making an audacious and an incredible claim about who he is and about what he came to do in the context of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles and the context of the scripture as a whole should make us say, okay, what's he really trying to say about himself? It's very fashionable where I live for people to respect Jesus. Um, I have a, 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 we, we live in Marin County, which is just over the Golden Gate Bridge from um, San Francisco, and it was the place of a lot of hippie communes in the 60s. And, um, and I have friends who have old pictures of Jesus that they've walked around for, for years and years in their wallet. And, uh, and one of, one of my, my plumber, who was a former hippie, has a picture of Jesus. And he's not a follower of Jesus, but it says, Jesus is my homeboy, and, and he loves Jesus. And it's very fashionable to kind of think Jesus is a cool guy. But Jesus is not just a cool guy. Jesus never claimed just to be a cool guy. Jesus is claiming here to be the Shekinah glory of God. Those torches at the Feast of Tabernacles were to represent the fact that God had led them out of Egypt by a, by a, a cloud of fire by night and, and by a cloud or a, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud during the day. Jesus was claiming to be uh, 
this one who was to come. And so it's incredibly challenging to us. He's not saying that he's a light to direct people to God. He's not saying he's just one of many lights. He's saying he is the light. In fact, earlier in John's gospel, he says he's the true light. The the true light that was life had come into the world. And so he makes this audacious claim. And we have to give it real consideration. Is it just possible? Is it just possible that Jesus really is the light of the world? Is it just possible that if you follow him, you will not walk in darkness, but walk in the true light? It's a very, very challenging passage as well. It's really challenging. It's challenging because light chases away darkness. If you think about light, light gives life. And without, without light, there's no photosynthesis. Without, without light, there's no photosynthesis, which means there's no food, which means there's no fuel for the body, which means there's no life. Uh, without light, uh, we don't have truth. The, the truth uh, shines light on, or uh, truth is, is the light. It shines the light. Uh, darkness is what hides, hides the truth and, and leads to death. I watched the other night with my, uh, my youngest son, who's about to go off to college. We watched all the president's men together. And it was so wonderful to watch how the light began to shine on the criminal activity that was going on there. Uh, light gives joy. It chases away the sorrow. Uh, I have a friend who just did a remodel of their house and they had their kitchen on one side of the house and they completely flipped it around to have it on the other side because she got the morning sun in th- through that light. And it, cha- it literally, she said, has changed her life. Light is life. And so what I'm saying here is by its very nature, light challenges the darkness. Darkness has no hope when the light comes in. And if you hang with me just a little bit, I want you to see a, a little bit more of the force of that statement. That Jesus is, is making this audacious claim And he's also challenging lesser lights, okay? Like I said, hang with me. I'm not trying to add too many metaphors here, but but the the force of what he's saying here is that that lesser lights are like darkness when they're compared to me. That if 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 you follow Jesus, you have the true light in in the world. Um, Most of us, don't walk in the sort of the depravity and, and the darkness of, of deep, deep evil. But we do often ask lesser lights to be our light. We un, un, unwittingly, and sometimes wittingly, but we unwittingly ask lesser things to be the light in our life for us. Uh, they're generally good things that we ask to be ultimate things, but those lesser lights are so ineffective, they're as if they're darkness. Let me try to, let me try to uh, give you a couple of different ways to think about this. Imagine going to the Portland Trailblazers game. I'm sort of a sports fan. Imagine going to the game, and you're at the stadium, and it's a night game, and the lights go out. But you have your iPhone, right? It's a, and it's got a light on it. And the light is really good. Like, when I come home from getting groceries, and it's dark at my house. I live on sort of up in the hills, and there's no street lights. It's, not, it's an unincorporated area, and it's really, really dark. But when I get out my iPhone to, want to, to light my path into the house, it works great. It's a great light. And yet, if you're at the Portland Trailblazers game, and there's no lights, your light will, they'll have to cancel the game because it's inadequate. It's, just, it's as if it was darkness. And what I'm saying is, is that Jesus, the, the true light that we need, the true life that gives life, that allows us to no longer walk in darkness. Jesus is saying, I'm that light. And that even though good, there are lights, and I've given you lights, I've given you the iPhone light, it's inadequate when compared to the true light. 
Um, maybe I'm getting older, but I was talking about reading the papers. And I like to read, uh, or I, I've been reading more often. I don't know why I'm doing it. Maybe it's just the content of my local paper so weak. But I, I've been reading the obituaries more. And one of, the, one of the things in the obituaries that people say all the time, and, and, and listen, I, I want to say this with such respect and dignity, is that, that they, they refer to their spouse as the light of their, you know, we lost Mary this month, and she was the light of my life. And there's a sense in which that really is true. But one of the biggest problems in Marin County, and I bet it's one of the biggest problems in, in Portland, is when we ask our spouse to be our light. It's both destructive to our spouse and it's destructive to us. When we have a true light, and one of the most often ways in which we, we sort of deny the light and we walk in darkness, but Jesus said, don't walk in darkness, walk in the true light, is when we ask a lesser light to be our true light. One of the ways in which we do this is, uh, is we ask our kids to be the light. Now, this, this is a huge phobia. This is a, this is a, this is a disease like in, in Marin County where I live, and I bet it's also true here. I don't think this is unique to, to the place where I live. Uh, uh, recently, there was a, a young, young woman, uh, early 30s, and she's from Marin County, and she and she uh, studied uh, literature and writing, and she's written a novel. Uh, during the recession in 2008, she had to move back to Marin uh, and live with her parents, and she tutored kids in, in our county, and she watched a lot of them. So she grew up there, and she also watched them a lot, and she wrote a novel about uh, those. About those. It's, a, it's, a, it's fiction, but uh, the book is entitled, and it's written about the place where I live, which... It's kind of a spectacular place, isn't it, Brian? I mean, people, people long to live there. It's kind of a spectacular place, but the name of the book is The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. And you think, this is just hyperbole. Well, I want, I, want to, I want to take a little chance here. I'm not the greatest out loud reader, okay? But I want to read a little section. It's actually a, 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 a page and a half section of this book to give you a little sense of what I'm talking about. And uh, this is a little excerpt, and it's a discussion between a, a boy named David Chow uh, and his mother. Uh, David was an average student. He was a bright kid, but he wasn't the top of the class kind of a kid, you know? And none of his, none of his schoolwork really showed that he was a top of the class kind of kid, but he's a good kid. And his mother, however, was a very accomplished student. She had come from humble means, and she was a very accomplished student. She had graduated from Cal, and I think she had an MBA from there as well. And she gave up her professional career to be his mom. And so there's this little bit of like, you know, I gave up a lot for you sort of edge to her. And uh, so let me read this little excerpt. And, uh, and I think you'll get what I'm talking about is how we ask our children who are great lights in our life, who are, who are, often, who are often very accomplished in themselves and who are delighted to be around, but we ask them to be our true light. And it's, it's so dangerous. So this is, this is the, the little... Uh, Dialogue between the two of them. He, oh, by the way, he had just finished his uh, SAT prep class, and he took an SAT uh, sort of, uh, you know, a challenge test, and he didn't do that great on it, and it was very disappointing for the both of them. And so he and his mother are meeting, and let me read. It felt strange to him, this distance between them. 
When uh, he was a kid, they'd spent hours, days, years alone together. When his father would leave for work, the air in the house would seem to lighten and expand. And she'd sit with him on the vine-laced living room rug playing Thomas the Tank Engine and cook him butter noodles, warm and plain, just like he liked, and fold fold him into bed at night with stories about heroes who were always brave and always saved the world. And he and she just loved him. And there was nothing that he had to do to earn it. Dave's mother arranged herself on the desk chair, pointed her knees toward the bed. We're not understanding each other, she said. Dave shrugged. You, would, you, you think we don't love you? We don't care? You're the most important thing in our life, David. Number one. I know, he said. Uh, what she had said was supposed to be a compliment, but it made the acid lurch in his stomach. David's mother wrinkled her forehead. Her eyes were liquid brown. The skin around them had feather grooves in which the black gunk of her makeup had smudged. She said, all we ask is that you realize what you are. What I am, he echoed. You you know you could do so much better. You could do anything if you'd only try. His mother's voice was firm and emphatic. He was going to throw up. Did she really believe these things? Did she really believe he hadn't tried? He had nothing to say to her. He pulled his legs to his chest. His socks were bleached and his toes, with his toes banded by a thin gold thread. In the silence, his mother said carefully, you know, I've always wondered what it would feel like to have really done something. This confession had come out of nowhere. We were, uh, was, was he supposed to respond? He couldn't. He felt he had intruded on a private moment she was having with herself, yet she seemed to be waiting for him. Her gaze fell into her hands, her hair swept into her eyes, and she tucked it self-consciously behind her ear. It was not her usual harried brushing away. It was something a girl would do. What do you mean, he asked. Nothing. She smiled and waved him away. The moment was over. It's just, I, I don't want you to regret. You have so much potential. You could be anything you choose to be, and she placed her hand on his shoulder and squeezed. Dave looked into her eyes. What he saw was not anger, or disappointment, or righteousness, but simple human need. She had given up her life to be his mother because he was special. Every report card told her otherwise, that he was little more than a hard worker and a pleasure to have in class, yet she kept the faith. He had the potential that he could, and one day, at the right time, with the right class, with the right teacher, he would. This story she told herself, this was the story she told herself, it was his job to make it true. It was hard, he thought, to be responsible for all this happiness. He was angry, but he was also sorry. I'll try harder, he told her. I will try to do better. Drifting to sleep that night, David imagined another life in which he was allowed to wear his happiness in a simple way that felt native to him. He thought of, he thought of his future secretly as if his parents would peer through the crack of the bedroom door and deep into his brain, he usually left the door open because closing it triggered a string of questions he couldn't stand. Why do you need to have this door closed? What are you doing in there? What are you doing in there? He saw not a high-powered job, not a doctor's white coat, not a lawyer-striped suit, but himself, David Chow, in chinos and a polo shirt in the middle of an ordinary life, some job, a home, enough money to see the newest superhero blockbuster every Friday night, not at the House Theater in Mill Valley, but at a strip mall mega complex with stadium seating and IMAX screens. He wanted the hero to get the girl. He wanted to eat milk duds and popcorn and sip a Sprite, a sprite from the straw that he shared with his girlfriend or 
with his wife. I don't know if I read it that well. I hope, I hope you sort of followed along with me. But when I read that, I wanted to, I wanted to cry. In fact, I did cry. I, I have a hard time not even crying just reading it again to you now. Um, I don't know how David can bear the weight of his parents' uh, expectations for him, and let alone his mom's sacrifice for him. Um, why does he need to lose his childhood to, to meet his parents and to affirm his, what his parents had decided to do? And I, and I understand the, the despair that his parents will have when he doesn't meet their expectations, when he does just what he kind of has always done, which is average or, or just a little bit above. You see what I'm getting at is that we can tip our cap and say Jesus is our light, but functionally we always we always seem to find our hope in someone or something other than Jesus. And so often we do it with our children. And, we, and when we do it, we, it's destructive to them. And when we do it, it's destructive to us. I was David Chow, by the way. And uh, I've been somebody's idol. Uh, and I've made the mistake of making somebody else my idol. I know the pattern in Marin County for asking your spouse to do what only Jesus can do for you because I've done it, right? I, like I can smell a rat when I see it. And here's the good news is that, that we all do this, whether it's with celebrity or with our reputation or with our career. We ask our career to be what only God can be for us. And when we do that, we destroy not only our career, we destroy the people around us. It's hurtful to them. It's hurtful to our employer. It's hurtful to us. When we ask, when we ask our, our children, when we ask our spouse, when, when we ask uh, um, you know, our reputation, It's always destructive, not only for them, but also for us. But Jesus is inviting us in. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the true light. (laughs) I know you've been walking in darkness, but now's the time. Come and receive this true light. And so, friends, the the thing that I I guess I want you to see more than anything is that the true light that gives light has come into the world, and he has... He has done away with the darkness. In fact, this gospel goes on to say what they didn't know, what we know from the hindsight, is that that Jesus would take on the darkness. That that on the cross, he he took everything that darkness had to give. In fact, the the gospel writer Matthew talks about it this way. He says, says, from the the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land when Jesus was on the cross. And on the cross, he took everything all the powers of sin and darkness upon him. He bore the weight of every injustice and every, uh, every righteous judgment of God toward the darkness. And then the greatest words, <laughs> early in the morning on the first day, the gospel writers, uh, Matthew writes it like this, at dawn on the first day, Jesus rose again from the dead. And the true light that gives light is offering us that light, to, to unite to that light. And so, friends, let me just try to wrap up just very quickly and say, how, how do we respond to this light? We receive the light. We, we unite to the light. The, the one thing is, if you've never, if you, if you've never known the light, is that you, you repent and come to light. If you've known the light before, but you're walking in darkness, well, as Brian led us, we confess our sins, and, and we receive. The, the absolution of sins is to say, those are no... That darkness you've been walking in is no longer the darkness, is no longer your life. You can receive the light. And so we receive the light. But another way to, to, to respond to this is just to, to, uh, to live an examined life. It's to let the light of Christ come into our life. And live an examined marriage. Live an examined 
Friendship. Live, live an examined life in friendship. Let your friends show you the light. Let your friends help you when you're, when you're uh, walking in darkness to see the light. Let your spouse help you to see the light. Live an examined life. Let the scriptures lead you. The true light that gives light has come into the world. He's inviting us into it. And I commend him to you. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the true light that gives life. Lord, we ask of lesser lights all the time to be our true light, to give us the light of life, and yet um, they're good things, but they never will. Lord, would you help us to repent, to turn, to appreciate those good things as the good things that they are, but to not ask them to be what only you can be for us, the true light that gives life. Lord, I pray that we might be ambassadors of this light. That as we go into our workplaces in Portland, that as we go into our homes around the Portland area, that we might be ambassadors of your light, chasing away the darkness in our lives and living in the honesty and the authenticity of your light. And we pray it for your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.